So this is actually the first time I've seen this film all the way through. I'll explain why in a minute, but... <laughs> Interesting, uh... God, where did I even begin? Let's say you're making a film, right? You're sitting down, you're like, okay, we're gonna make this film, it's gonna be cool. You know, actually, let me rewind a second. So, a little bit of insight into the creative process here. I usually do works in an order that makes sense for the construction of the work, but the release order has nothing to do with that. The reason I mention that is because this is one of the last films I've actually recorded for this year, even though it's the first one that's going to be going live, or the second one, I forget which, but it's one of the first ones. It should be January. Um, now, I mention all that because a recurring element, as I keep pointing out, all these films, I have a list over here, uh, all these films that were considered box office bombs, but critical successes for some reason or another. You know, we've got uh, Fight Club, we've got Sunshine, you know, we've got uh, Princess Bride, my personal favorite example of that. And all these films, you know, I've been checking the actual figures and giving you, and so in your future you'll be hearing, some of the net income that a lot of these films have been making, right? Now... Before I tell you that, the gross income for this film, which I actually didn't write down, was something like $300 million, which is a, which is a good amount. It's not mind-bogglingly huge, but this still, that's, that's decent figures. Good, good, good. Would, it belie would, would you believe that this is the biggest box office bomb in terms of numbers of every movie we're covering this year? Now, the reason I prefaced that is because I feel like... So there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of talks about why this film bombed. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way really quick. I don't have any tactile or factual information about the backlash to Episode Eight, which, I remind you, made a ton of money, having any impact on the sales figures of Solo. Now, I want to get that out right up front, because I guarantee that that's what most people think. I know this because not only is that what I've seen people say for some time, but when I mentioned this to my friend last night, his reaction was, oh, wow, the, the fat feedback from 8 was so bad, that's what it caused him to bomb? Possibly. It is entirely possible that sales figures were hurt because of episode 8. But remember, 300 million. This film should have made money. The problem was everything. And that is the problem with this film. I'm just going to try and go down the list of a broad, zoomed-out perspective, because we first of all, we have this film, and we wanted to start this whole thing, a Star Wars story. That was the whole series they were going to do. They were going to do a Boba Fett one, they were going to do a Obi-Wan one. As of recording this, those are still on hiatus, and future films are also still on hiatus, possibly being worked on, but if they are, they're not talking about it. We'll see if that changes by the time this this video actually goes live. Another thing, though, is that they really wanted to just expand this this network, and so they brought in Lawrence Kasdan, which is a name that most Star Wars writers should probably be familiar. Star Wars writers, wow, Star Wars fans should probably be familiar with. So, all right, we got in the big guns. Excellent, cool, cool, cool. Uh, you know what? Let's actually have him go work on the other film. Let's let's send him out of here, and let's bring in his son instead. Now, I want to stress that, because that by itself is already a fairly large problem. 
Jonathan Kasdan, or excuse me, Lawrence Kasdan, actually went on to work on, uh, I think it was Force Awakens at the time, given the timeline. You're probably thinking, well, wait, this film came out after Episode Eight. We're getting there, trust me. Um, I'm pretty sure he went to work on Force Awakens. But either way, Jonathan Kasdan took over. So we've got a major writer shift in mid-stride. Okay, that's cool. Then they start filming in January 30th. Okay. Then there's this interesting gap in our information. It's so big that I'm going to give you a vague date of June-ish. Sometime in June-ish... Issues that had been piling up started to be uh, to become more public and finally led to a series where they did the worst possible thing you could do while making a film. They paused production. Now, if you don't understand why that's so terrible, uh, all the sets still had to be left up and maintained. All of the uh, people still had to be kept on retainer, which means they're still draining money because they're you know still being paid. Uh, all of the areas that they've rented in terms of lots or space, either they are paying for or they are not making money on, depending on which lots they're using and where. Um, all the special effects people are still on, on retainer. All the actors still have to kind of be worked around because they've got their own schedules to work with. Everybody can't work on other things, so other films start to get hit by this. And it's basically this just gigantic... It, it's like throwing a bowling ball down into the middle of a giant pile of dominoes, which then may affect the, the patterns that other domino, or domino lines are trying to be made, right? Like, it's it's a... Big problem. This is actually extremely rare when it comes to film production, where a film just gets paused for a significant period of time. This actually happened to the Hobbit trilogy as well. I forget when exactly in its construction, but it was a problem. Anyways, so so June-ish, sometime around there, they pause production. Everyone just kind of stills. And we find out that there's massive issues under the hood. Now, this is important because... We found out about this even back then, over a year before the film came out. We knew that there were production issues. That's important. Keep it in mind. So we find out that the tone was inconsistent because the director, excuse me, the directors, I didn't even write their names down, as well as Kasdan and the team just kind of kept going back and forth on what they wanted with tone, uh, whether it was a comedy or just had lighter touches or a lighter tone or whatever. Also, they were encouraging their actors to improv, which Kasdan hated, and they were using substantially less camera angles and camera footage, which was making editing substantially harder, and they kept having conflicting issues with Kasdan showing up on set where he would try to direct, which, of course, they felt was causing issues and blah, 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 blah. So they actually sat down and did a rough editing draft and started reviewing their footage, and they decided, nope. <clears throat> So not only did they get rid of the two directors, who, again, whose names I didn't even write down, but they also got rid of the main editor. <laughs> then they br- they're like, they're scramble around. Fortunately, they already had Ron Howard kind of on call, so they were like, hey, you know. And he was ready to do it. He wanted to do it. I mean, who wouldn't want to direct a Star Wars film, honestly? So he comes in. Okay. Now remember, this is still around June-ish, okay? I want that to be in your mind, because... Then they started shooting again. Okay, good. Uh, schedules weren't moving forward. They shot until March. And the off chance I'm not being obvious enough about it, March is before June, a.k.a. it took them a year, almost a year, in order to do their, re- their shooting. And you're probably thinking, well, hold on. 
They'd already spent, like, what is that, January, February, well, actually, let's just cut out January, because it was January 30th, so February, March, April, May, June-ish, that's at least four months of filming, right? Yeah, yeah, now you're starting to see the problems. They spent so much time filming and shooting, and then Howard said, you know what, let's do reshoots, and he had support for that, for whatever reason, so he did an enormous amount of reshoots. An inordinate amount of reshoots. So many reshoots that one of the characters, Dryden Voss, had to literally be replaced by another actor, and in so doing, they had to completely change what kind of species he was in order to accommodate the alteration. Now, I've covered other unmitigated messes, and later this year I'll be covering Apocalypse Now, which was an even bigger mess behind the scenes than this thing. But this isn't so much of a mess as it is a waste. This is the problem, really. This is the biggest reason why this film bombed. Because it was expensive as crap. Near as I can tell, we actually still to this day do not know the full total cost for this film. Because there's some stuff that they just weren't keeping track of because of the extended elongated shooting and the pause I mentioned earlier. So, you could look up figures for budget and you will probably find several different figures for that, just like I did when I looked it up. So, in keeping with the tradition that I'm basically establishing here, that will then carry forward for the rest of this year, how much money did this film make? Well, I'm not sure because of inconsistent reporting. It lost somewhere, yes, lost, somewhere from $50 million to a hundred. Actually, like 113, I think, is the total number. Depending on which factors, figures are right or wrong, and again, there's, there's some misreporting going on here, guaranteed. Yikes. Now, hang on. I'm not done yet. So, some people say Star Wars fatigue was a part of this. I adamantly don't agree with that. As much as people start talking about, you know, film fatigue, the numbers never support that. The numbers have never supported that in terms of actual box office figures. So I, I don't buy into that personally. However, I will say that the film itself did not did not come out in a good era for Star Wars films. Let's just go and be honest about that. Because whether Episode Eight was good, bad, or anything in between, it made a lot of noise. And that causes issues pretty much no matter what. I'm not giving my own opinion on Eight, by the way. I'm not getting into let's Let's just leave Episode Eight out of the comments. Can we do that? Because if you don't, I'll probably just delete the comments. I'm just going to be honest about this. Is not, we're not here to talk about Episode Eight. We're here to talk about Solo. And the fact that Solo bombed. Because, bad time for a Star Wars film to come out. Absolutely horrific production, by the way, which we knew about. I pointed this out when I was doing my stream discussion of this film. We knew the problems walking into this film. And that's never a good thing for consumer or, uh, I guess, viewer confidence, right? So, that didn't help. In fact, I actually knew someone personally who would not have seen the film if I hadn't invited him to it because of the fact that he was so concerned about the behind-the-scenes issues, and with good reason. So, behind the so we've got <laughs> timing, behind-the-scenes mess, massively over budget, ridiculously over. I think this is the seventh most expensive film ever made as of right now, something like that, which is just nonsense. Um, I mean, this film of all films. Then we have two final things that, that were the final nails in the coffin. Item number four, they refused to market it properly, and they refused to move its release date. 
There's some inconsistent and some conflicting information on this fourth point, but everything that I've read tends to agree with the fact that one way or another they refused to move the release date, and it is a demonstrable fact that they didn't market it that well. The trailer didn't even come out until like a little over three months before the film was set to release. Why? Well, probably because they literally didn't have the footage to use. (sighs) Yeah. There was also the fact that they were struggling with... Disney was basically trying to cross-promote several things at this point in time, and so they didn't, allegedly, they didn't allow for an increase in budget to marketing because all of that money of marketing was going towards other films. And if there is one consistent truth about cinematic films, cinematic cinematic, uh, economics, there we go, that's how I want to actually say that, it is that if you don't market a film, it doesn't sell, even if it's a good film. This has been consistently true throughout most of known history. There are films, and we'll be covering several later this year, which are good films, which sold very well once they hit VHS, or once they hit DVD, or are considered classics or cult classics, that were not marketed, and as a result, did not sell well. And hey, here we are! Now, I'm not saying Solo's a classic, actually, this is a fairly mediocre film in my opinion. But, the marketing was probably... At this point, this film still probably would have been able to recompense some of its losses if they'd marketed it properly, which they did not. And that leads me to the fifth and final reason this film bombed, Infinity War. Now, I don't know how many... You're probably thinking, what? This film came out uh, alongside several other films. It was uh, just before, I think, Deadpool 2, which itself was kind of a competitor and, you know, geek demographic. And there were a couple other films coming out at the same time, but the problem was Infinity War was still in theaters when this came out, and Infinity War was a financial juggernaut, just like most Avengers films are. And it is an absolutely undeniable fact that Infinity War's bleed-over kind of hurt the sales of most films that were coming out in the wake of Infinity War's release, including this one. So that's five nails in the coffin. Yeah. Not not what I would call a surprise. <sighs> Let's talk about the film. So, right off the bat, we see a narrator. Well, we have this narration, which is amazingly unnecessary and could have been ejected from the film and it wouldn't have changed anything. I suppose you could say that about most Star Wars films, but if the only reason you're doing something is for tradition's sake, maybe you should reconsider why you're doing that. Especially since, you know, the side films don't necessarily have to maintain the crawl. In fact, this doesn't have a crawl. It just has a plain narration, which exposits everything that we already then see in the in the scenes that immediately follow it. So I don't know why they bothered. Anyways, we then see uh, them constructing the Star Destroyers, kids who are stealing money, talking about portions, by the way. So this is a Star Wars film. I know, shocking. But as with everything Star Wars, I just kind of had Wikipedia up on the side here every time something caught my attention to look it up. Because, of course, every tiny, dinky little thing is something that's been expounded upon. That's the nature of Star Wars. I'm actually going to talk about that topic later. Portions really are actually just food. I had this whole thing debating what portions are, because it comes up in uh, Force Awakens as well. Turns out portions is just food. It's uh, it's a specific type of uh, ration. And they come out in these big old sheets, and you can chop them up and... Then here you go, here's your portion. So, food, people stealing for food. Yep, okay, that lines up. Corellia 
Uh, it's not doing as well as I remember back in tour, but then again, we did kind of blitz the crap out of it, so maybe that's our fault. Anyways, they also mentioned about getting out of the control zone and then getting off Corellia, which implies that they currently live in a pair area, which doesn't allow uh, immigration, for lack of a better term. And given that they literally go through an immigration office, that makes sense. I do find myself wondering why exactly the Galactic Empire insists on maintaining an immigration office on planet, but let's not get into galactic... Uh, World building, I suppose, because Star Wars doesn't have the best world building. Let's just let's just put it that way. So <clears throat> this then leads to the Crime Lord Proxima. <laughs> I'm evil. You ever notice that Crime Lords, especially in Star Wars, just have this thing where that you you could replace them with Sith and you could barely tell the difference. You ever notice that? Like, they're just all down for being like, Wahaha, you have failed me for the last time, stabby stabby. It's just a thing. Like, Jabba, I was kind of okay with Jabba getting away with that because he's a hut. And huts are overpowered death machines who also control, you know, it, it, probably the biggest chunk of the criminal underworld of the entire galaxy. And Jabba himself, at least in certain, you know, Mr. Dejuric, or however you pronounce his name, was at several points the biggest fish in the sea with regards to the criminal underworld. So I can kind of tolerate that when the crime lord of the galaxy can get away with that crap. But no, everyone does it. Every little dinky little nobody, including Miss Proxima, who runs a gang of street urchins. And she's still, <laughs> evil, evil. Anyways, naturally, in keeping with her being a stupid Sith, she is naturally right next to a window which can easily be breaking, which causes her severe pain. Cute. So, he gets away. Han is a really good pilot. Why? I know this is a weird thing to comment on. Why is Han a good pilot? I was actually always under the impression that he had some natural talent for reflexes and, and perception. And then he went to the Imperial Fleet Academy and honed that to a fine edge and then refused to be evil because, you know, duh. In fact, I'm pretty sure, didn't he fight against Suntir Fell or something like that? God, it's been a while. Anyways, so, you know, innate skill plus drive plus, you know, training equals really good pilot. But no, he's just this really good pilot throughout the whole film for some reason. I only comment on that because, well, let's go ahead and talk about the dice. So he, the film makes a big deal about these dice, right? While this was happening, I pulled up my copy of both A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back and pulled up several scenes that showed the Millennium Falcon's cockpit. You know how much of the dice I saw? None. I'm sure they're there somewhere, in some scenes. I suppose I could have looked it up specifically, but I'm just pointing out, why make the dice a big deal, of all things? They make so many things a big deal in this film. Why dice? Why, why, anyways, whatever. Moving on, moving on. <clears throat> but the thing I want to comment on here. <sighs> why, uh. The film. <sighs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to debate my thought because this is probably the thing I've seen most discussed about this film. Amongst friends, amongst just random threads on the internet, amongst parody sites which make fun of this film. Everything always hits the exact same point. Oh, we don't need to know where every single little thing in Han's backstory comes from. Right? I'm sure you're thinking that right now. Or if you're not, you've probably seen or heard someone who has said exactly that. Now, I'm going to go ahead and paint a giant target on my face and say I have absolutely no problem whatsoever 
with the idea of them going ahead and doing something so fanservice-y as to explain in little ways how certain things came to be. The problem, I think, is how they do it. They're so overt and bloody obvious about it. It's like the film has to pause every time something new comes up, turn to the camera, I, I guess since I'm already looking at the camera, and just be like, hey, look, this is where this comes from. And that's the problem, is because it is so overt, it loses the emphasis. It, there's nothing wrong with a prequel trying to explain things, especially if you're doing it for fan service reasons. But at so many points, it's just, yeah, look, this is where he gets the gun, and this is where he gets his name, and, and so forth and so on. And it just pauses entirely long to, too long to do so. Uh, there's actually another element. Ah, there it is. I knew it was here. I made a note of it right there. There's one thing that is this exact thing that, in my opinion, is done properly. Can any of you guess it before I say it? it I've probably given away that it's in the latter half of the film because I had to flip the page to find it. Anyone? Go on in three, two, one. Chewie rips a guy's arms off right in front of Han. You're probably thinking, well, how's that exposition? How's that a explanation thing? Later on, Han will jokingly say, hey, you know, you need to be careful. Chewie might rip your arms off if, if he loses, blah, 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 blah. Now, he is, of course, joking, but Han has actually seen Chewie not only do that, but there go be capable of doing that. Chewie, of course, buys into it because he's part of the joke. But my point is, you're probably thinking, well, that's, that barely has anything to do with anything. Exactly. It's just this quiet, under-the-rug thing, which you would barely notice unless you're bothering to sit down and think about it, in which case it kind of works better for me. Now, obviously, you can't do that with everything. Um, you know, it, you have to come up with something more overt for things like his name, although obviously we don't actually have to do that. He could have just said his name is Han Solo, so that's unnecessary. The Blaster... That actually, I think, was done decently, because the whole point is he's breaking down this rifle, and as he does so, he reconstructs the blaster, which he tosses at Han. Now, we know from the E, at the very least, that that blaster is actually pretty high power. It's a heavy blaster. The fact that it's a rifle then makes sense, so that kind of works well. The fact that he is given a high-powered rifle, which has been dumped down into a blaster, helps to explain why his blaster is so good. And, and just it, it dips in and out of acceptability throughout the film, and that's my point. It's how they execute it, not the idea itself. <sighs> so, anywho, <clears throat> we talked about the dice. Um, this is a good time to mention something. Uh, so the recruit, the recruit's pleasant enough. Go figure. He's going to send them to Carida. That's a nice touch, by the way. That's a nice nod. Carida? I forget how he pronounces it. He only says it once. That is actually one of the Imperial Academies back in the EU. Uh, Kip Duran says hello. And there's also there's some there's some good stuff here is what I'm trying to say. There's some little winks and some little nods here and there that I think work a lot better than the far more overt ones. So it's not like there is a lack of talent in the writing staff. It's just you're probably wondering why I'm opening my Imperial Source book here. By the way, this is still one of my favorite little things when it comes to Star Wars. There's a bit immediately after this where he's fighting on the ground. And the guy's like, we need to go this way, we need to go this way, okay, now we need to go up here. And he's, he's being all, you know, for the Empire and help recruit and try to take care of his soldiers, and then he dies. In the Order of Battle, Chapter 8, 
<clears throat> Before entering a combat situation, a lieutenant usually sends his sergeant major to the squad, which he believes will come under the most pressure. If possible, the lieutenant does not stay with any one squad, but tries to go where he is most needed on the battlefield. This tends to give lieutenants a very short lifespan. To, to continue, just really briefly, there are two types of lieutenants who survive their first encounter. Uh, the first type is a pragmatic individual who realizes the limitation of doctrine and sticks with one squad when the blaster bolts get thick. They maintain command, control through the headcom connection, waving of hands, and occasionally screaming at the top of their lungs. The second type is one tough trooper. I know that's not intentional, and I know they didn't do that, but that, that actually amused me so much that I had to comment on it because it was the first thought I had there. Good book, I recommend it. Uh, it's obviously completely non-canon at this point, but then again, what isn't? <laughs> I also got to tell you guys a story. I mentioned earlier that I haven't seen this film in its totality. This section is the part I missed. Some of you who were present at the stream discussion know this story, so I'm just going to tell this in brief. We're watching this in the theaters, uh, me and my friends. Now, when we go to watch this sucker... Uh, the theater we used has assigned seating. Now, that's actually unusual here in the States. Usually, most theaters, you just you buy a ticket. And then you go and you just kind of figure it out for yourself, right? Now, that works fine. But the assigned seating places, those are usually nicer seats. That's why we do that, because we're entering our late 30s and our backs hurt. So we want to be comfortable while we're enjoying the film, right? pretty logical. You pay a little bit more, but I'm the one footing the bill anyway, so whatever. They all just kind of accept my generosity, and we go and enjoy a nice seat and assigned seatings. So we're sitting there. Some people walk up, look at us, look at their phones, or excuse me, no, look at that piece of paper in their hands, look at us, and then walk back down. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, ah, oh, crap, because I knew exactly what had happened. And I was right. So... An actual, uh, they, they then come by a little bit later to discuss what's going on. And I show that, and I had already, as soon as I saw that, I pulled up on my ticket, because I buy my tickets on my phone, pulled up the ticket stamp with the little code. I was like, you know, just had it ready to go. So when they showed up, I could be like, here, here's the thing. I'm not sure how this happened. Turns out they had bought their tickets just recently, like that day. I usually buy my tickets weeks in advance, if not months, if available. So the theater screwed up. The manager actually came by and talked to us, and he re-signed us, and we, we actually, they ended up moving. I was willing to move, but they, they went ahead and accepted it. Um, gave us some free tickets, you know, and, and it was actually a pretty good thing. The manager was nice and polite and managed to get everything working, and it wasn't a big issue. It's just something that had to be dealt with. By the time it was done, uh, let's see, I think the next thing I saw was they were already, you know, uh, they had already escaped, effectively. You know, Chewie and Han had already gotten out and then gotten on board the ship and they'd already flown off and that's when I came back to the film. So I pretty much missed the entire war sequence. So, having watched this for the first time now, I have to say that it's probably one of the better sequences of the entire film. The tone is excellent. The limited visibility, the mud, the trenches, the constant issues, the, the fire in the distance... The fact that they're not stormtroopers. They're just Imperial regulars. You know, it, it, it's all good stuff. I would love to see more of this in, as a story. Why don't we have more of this? <laughs> um, I, just whatever, I suppose. 
Beckett comes in, he's better coordinated, he has better hardware, and of course that's because he's not an Imperial. This is a good time to mention something that will be coming up at least two more times that I'm going to bring it up. The film, the AU in general, the, the Disney canon, cannot seem to decide if the Galactic Empire should be the big terrifying threat, or, ha <laughs> ha zany comedy, they're so incompetent! And it t tends to flip-flop between the two. Now, in the interest of honesty, yes, it is entirely possible for an organization as large and as vast as the Galactic Empire to be simultaneously deadly competent and hilariously incompetent. But I do think, my opinion, it does hurt the overall narrative flow of all of Star Wars to depict them in two such <sighs> contradictory ways. Because even if it makes sense in-universe, out-of-universe, what it is is Jar Jar Binks versus Darth Vader. Except they're the same thing, depending on which thing we're looking at at any given point in time. I mean, obviously, they don't... I don't mean that literally. I shouldn't have used Star Wars examples, but it was the first thing that came to mind. You know what I mean. It's either Three Stooges or it's Citizen Kane. God, that's a terrible analogy. I'm sure I could come up with better, but let's just move on. The point is, the inconsistent tone has always bothered me. I'm curious if it bothers any of you guys, too. That was actually one of my biggest complaints about Rebels, a show that otherwise I love. Nevertheless, felt the need to not only portray the Empire as, <laughs> they're so stupid, but also have, frankly, childish slapstick humor, which just really pulled me out of the show. I still recommend it. I just give that caveat every time I do. Which brings me to this. Why? Why do they do that? Well, because it's my job, I decided to analyze here is my deduction, which is probably incredibly wrong and stupid. I think that they are trying to inject comedy without really knowing exactly how to do that. One of the other things that's going to happen later this year in other films that we're going to be covering is I'm going to be analyzing comedy, which means I'm going to be very boring and bland and dry as I explain not only the jokes, but the methodology of the jokes. But... One of the methodology of joking is slapstick humor, physical comedy, put simply. Physical comedy is usually considered lowbrow, although I feel that's too derogatory. The more relevant point is lowbrow, that is to say, physical comedy, tends to be more broad. Things... The more specific a joke is, the more specifically crafted it is, the fewer people who will get it. The fewer people who get it, the fewer people who laugh, right? And if they have to be explained the joke, they may laugh, and they may not. That's always actually a gamble. They always say, don't explain the joke. But the truth is, sometimes it does work. It's just sometimes it does not. However, the less specific the joke is, the larger group of people will find it. So what we have is this problem, right? Physical comedy is way out here, where lots and lots of people will find it funny. Now, by contrast, a specifically crafted joke, that is to say something that is very referential or only works if you happen to be a network admin of third level who works with v uh, VR machines, for example. Oh, not VR machines, VMware machines. Get my terminology wrong. That type of joke, only a few people are going to find it funny. But if you craft it carefully enough, if, in other words, if it's a good joke, the people who find it funny are going to find it funnier. That's why I do the graph like this. It's funnier, but fewer people see it. Or, it's less funny, but more people think it's funny. With me? This is all relevant because broad physical comedy is called broad comedy for a reason. It's because more people find it funny, but less funny. Side note, it is worth noting that there is an actual craft and care to physical and broad comedy. And there are ways to make it actually really, 
really, really, really funny, and the true masters of their craft have done so over the years. See the aforementioned Three Stooges. Nevertheless, it is the easy way out to make a joke that a lot of people are going to be into. Ha <laughs> ha, they bonged their head, or whoops. Let me use a direct example. A droid says, wait, you cannot go in there, and then walks out behind the car, and then says, you cannot go in, and then gets smashed by, a, by the trailing hovercraft, and then the head is left there on the ground and just says, there. There you go. Physical comedy. Broad physical comedy right there. Isn't it funny how we absolutely destroyed a droid? Oh, wait, we shouldn't be able to pick on droids. You know what? If we're going to have physical comedy, we need to have an acceptable target. We need to have someone that we can do these unpleasant and, frankly, horrible things to. You know, damaging, destructive, killing things. But it needs to be to people who it's okay to do that to. I've got an idea. Why not the Empire? And this is my analysis. Analysis? Analysis. I can't talk today. I think that the reason the Galactic Empire is so universally shown in a incompetent manner is for the purposes of broad physical comedy in order to try and appeal to as many people as possible by using targets that nobody cares about if they are like, Wah! it's so funny that they did. Wah! Using a direct example from Rebels. So... Having said all of that, um, uh, what the, where the hell am I in my notes? So, uh, right, so this, this is the Empire being incompetent. Naturally, Beckett is very competent because he's so much, he's, he's not with the Empire, and therefore he's got a brain. And Solo tries to blackmail him. That leads badly. That leads to the Wookiees. Of course, naturally, Han knows a little bit of Shurwook. Of all the things they try to explain, they don't explain how he learns that either. I guess it's been a few years, but where the heck did he pick that up? And for that matter, why? Anyways, he tries to reach out to Chewbacca. Chewbacca tries to reach out to him, if you know what I mean, and the two manage to escape. Neat. You ever wonder if Han actually buys his own bullcrap sometimes? Because he bullcraps a lot. I mean, the original Han did too. It's just, yikes. This one did that a lot. He's always smiling. It's just weird. His face just, it's like he's the Joker or something. I'm sorry, a small complaint. Naturally. They get out, and this leads to the first heist. I want to say, first of all, that John Favreau as Rio was awesome. It makes perfect sense, then, that they'd kill him off, because he's a beloved side character. And we can't have beloved side characters. We need to have serious, dark tragedy. Oh, wait, no, it's a lighthearted comedy, and then serious, dark tragedy. Another thing I'll be commenting on later this year is how difficult it is to manage to be in more than one lane at the same time with regards to the tone of your film. It is possible. I've seen it in films. I've seen it in games. I've seen it in books. I've seen it in shows. There is, it is, there's a craft to it, to managing to have something that is deadly serious and very character-driven drama, while at the same time being zany and ridiculous. It's hard to do. I like to think of it as the Yakuza effect, because of the Yakuza series of video games. Um, but you've probably, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. You've probably seen that several times. The other 99% of the time, when something tries it, it fails miserably. I hate to sound like I'm complaining, and I do certainly, I feel drained here as I'm just saying this, but I think this is probably the single biggest flaw of Solo for me as a film. Obviously, understanding the Under the Hood reasons why, you know, they switched writers, they switched directors, they switched editor, they switched tones, they reshot everything. It makes sense, almost everything, excuse me, almost everything. It makes sense why the film flip-flops in its tone. 
but it absolutely loses me every time it does it. I do not think it manages both tones properly. Allow me to use the Kessel sequence as an excellent example of what I'm talking about. Okay, we've got to sneak in. Deadly serious. Everything's nice and dear. Oh, no, no, we're good. Okay, now let's start a droid rebellion and this light kind of almost circus music starts playing do 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 and we're rescuing all the droids and they're beating up the guards and it's just portrayed as this silly funny thing and then it leads to the escape which is big dramatic heroics and then L3 gets shot and then it's serious and dark and tragic and then Londo rushes out and then it's serious dark and tragic and the Han rushes out and it's serious and dark and tragic and L3 L3 dies in Londo's hands and then we go right back to the adventure tone I don't think it works it takes care and craft to make those kind of tonal shifts work, and I don't think this film has that. No offense to Ron Howard. I do actually have a lot of respect for Howard as a director, but it's obvious that it just wasn't working here to me. Feel free to tell me I'm a moron and an idiot in the uh, comment section. I don't mind. I hear it every day, but that's not true. Almost every day. Almost every day. But I do want to mention... <sighs> The heist is portrayed as fairly serious, but kind of lighthearted, but then it goes very serious and dark as Rio dies, because we've got to go back to the tragedy. And then... Oh, God, I didn't even write down her name, did I? Beckett's lover dies as well. So, uh, that's that's neat. That's neat. It's also our introduction to Enfys, Enfys Nest, which... We, we basically get nothing on, although for once that's actually a good exposition. They just show up and thanks to context we kind of get what's going on here. Pre-existing history, they're marauders, they're coming to take this. Despite the fact that they say they're marauders, the actual leader goes way out of her way in order to not actually kill anybody. This is, of course, contrasted by her people who go way out of their way to kill people. They're the ones who shot Rio, after all. Anyways, point being, we do get some good exposition with them and how they're slid into the narrative. That's good. Naturally, the heist goes incredibly badly, and Han manages to save all their lives, which also leads to the destruction of the Coaxium. And we do get to see it take out a mountain. Now, that may not look impressive, and if it doesn't, then all I'm going to say is physics. Detonating and destroying that much raw mass of that density is a lot harder than it sounds and takes an inordinate amount of energy. It's one of the reasons why you set blasting charges when people are digging through mountains, and then you leave, and then you set more blasting charges, and then you leave, and then you set more blasting charges, and you do it in phases, because it's just it, you, we don't have that kind of explosive power. So that is actually pretty impressive. Of course, it's all for nothing. Beckett tries to push Han out. Beckett's probably on what I like to call the falling edge of decency. He's not a good person. He's not a decent person. But he's not an overtly evil person. He is what I actually would refer to on the D&D alignment chart as neutral evil. He is out for himself. But he's not overtly trying to screw everyone else. It's just his primary focus is himself. Selfish evil. Everyone else comes second. But, but if he's taken care of, he's okay with taking care of other people too. You know, he's willing to be reasonable, right? So, this then leads to a scene where we get introduced to Dryden Voss, and the way we're introduced to him is him stabbing the regional governor. Now, that always bugged me. Ever since I first saw that in the theaters, that has bugged the crap out of me. Because Star Wars likes to play way too loose with its terminology, to the point where it's actually irritating to try and keep track of sometimes. So, regional governor can mean a lot of different things. Now, given that Dryden Voss is a relatively small-scale crime boss, I'm thinking, okay, so this is like a guy in charge of a planet. 
maybe a system, but it could be even smaller than that, depending on the area. So I decided to go look it up. Turns out, we do have a name for the guy, which I'm not going to share for you because I didn't write it down because it doesn't matter. And he is the regional governor of the expansion region. Now, some of you who are familiar with Star Wars are going, wait, what? But for those of you who are not, uh, when they say he's a regional governor, they actually mean literally. He is in, in charge of one of the regions. There are ten regions in the entire galaxy. Yeah. That type of region. It goes region, well, actually, over sector, which is a separate categorization. Uh, region, sector, system, planet. That's the, that's the hierarchy. There's the deep core, the core worlds, the colonies, the inner rim, the expansion, the mid rim, the outer rim, the unknown, the western reaches, and wild space. Those are the regions. This guy is the governor of the entire expansion region. So, once again, we've got that. Are the Imperials here to be incompetent, or are they here to be deadly serious? This feels like this is leaning towards the incompetent thing, because Dryden Voss, who I remind you, is not that large-scale. Even his boss is only kind of that large-scale. We'll talk about that later. Decides to casually murder the governor of the entire expansion region in order to establish his character. All this establishes is just how much of a psychopath Dryden Voss really is. Oh, it gets even better than that. Why was he there? Why was he killed? Well, they don't show that on movie, but as usual, I decided to look this up. Because, you see, the reason he was there was he was trying to negotiate to allow Crimson Dawn ships more access and more passage. In other words, free movement across a, just one trade lane. Just one of the trade lanes going through the expansion region. And in return for that trade-off, he wanted some bribes. That's it. And for that conversation, Dryden Voss lost his temper to the extent where he murdered the man. Oh, by the way, nice little touch. Uh, Voss's scars kind of light up to show his mood. I actually do like that. That's pretty cool. A little bit of a gimme giveaway, but still a cool feature. This is a good time to talk about what I mentioned earlier. Star Wars stuff and how there's details for everything. I think this is why, more than anything else... Back in the day, it was a joke, I guess it's still true, that if you looked at any given shot, one, any given screen of the original a Star Wars, A New Hope, that wasn't just space, you know, that wasn't just stars, you could find some ancillary material somewhere that explained who that was, or what that was, or where it was, and its significance in the continuity. Because people just picked it apart and, and built stories out of characters who were on screen for literally less than a second. That's not hyperbole. That actually happened. Look up Tales of the Moss Eisley Cantina sometime, for God's sakes. The reason I bring this up, though, is one of the questions I've been asked before is why. And I think I've already given my answer when I talked about the regional governor thing. See, the thing is, imagine I'm sitting here watching this film, and picture... No, I know this is going to be hard. Picture I'm a geek, okay? I know, bear with me. And as I'm going through, there are certain things that catch my attention and then make me go, huh, okay. And so I look into them, and I research them, or maybe I decide to write for them. The things that then catch my attention get fleshed out, like Mr. Regional Governor, right? Well, let's say a few thousand people do this, and every one of them comes up with some other little thing, and what we have is a web of other people coming up with explanations and reasonings, and that's how things like the behind-the-scenes books get made. 
where you can see a shot in those books and it talks about all the nitty-gritty details of exactly how and why and wherefore with regards to whatever it is that interested those people who contributed to those books. That's just a theory. A lore theory, thanks for the lawsuit. But either way, I, I do find this concept fascinating. Star Wars is not unique in this. There are plenty of works where one random person or one random thing just is like, oh, and, and, you know, people get interested in that thing, and that leads to popularity, which leads to it being expanded upon. Pretty pretty normal thing. It's just Star Wars has been around since the 70s. Anyways. So then Kira shows up, finally, like an hour in. Um, I actually don't have much to say about Kira except for this. I really hope we get more of her. Her story so clearly ends in a to-be-continued kind of a fashion. And she has the most definitive character arc of anybody in this film. Han doesn't really have a character arc. He has more of a character exposition. He, he has characterization, developing who he is, but not changing, not altering, no growth or recession. By contrast, we do see Kira's arc from the young girl, which turns into the slave, which then tries to escape, which then gets trained by Voss, which then turns into the loyal lieutenant and the businessman who is also capable of fighting at a personal level, and then also, by the way, she wants to take over. She has an arc, and she's well-acted, too. That helps as well. And she's probably this, my second favorite character in the film. You know who the first favorite is, don't ask. <laughs> it does... I do have to admit, it's absolutely ridiculous that she just kind of stumbles into Han and this completely random thing, but this is Star Wars, right? We kind of have to... Ugh, just let the coincidences go after a certain point. So I want to share something. Um, I have this note here on both of my pages about the Sabacc game between Han and Lando, my favorite character in the film. There's two games. Now, I actually rather like uh, poker as a fictional element. I happen to really like the movie Maverick, for example. I highly recommend that for anybody who's interested in it, or even tangentially interested in that kind of a thing. It's a good film. I could watch a Maverick film about Han and L Lando. No question. I would watch the crap out of that. Centered around the two of them playing Sabacc, and then adventuring, and then playing Sabacc, and sold, you know? And considering that there are... It, it, Donald Glover nails it. Can I just say that? Well, I have weird thoughts about I didn't write his name down, who plays Han. And the woman who plays Kira does a really good job. And, you know, we, we've got good performances here and there. Um, I have to say, Donald Glover nails Lando so, so well. This is exactly what I picture a younger Lando to be like. Just charismatic and on top of things, and full of himself, to be able to project himself as if he's a high tier, as if he's a big player, a big fish, but more than smart enough to recognize when he's not. He he nails that 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 perfect slice there, and he is so awesome. Can we please have a Lando story with Donald Glover, please? Actually, fun fact: as of me recording this last week. There are rumors circulating that they have actually pulled in Glover and are working on something that's going to go on Disney Plus with him as Lando. So, who knows? Maybe it'll actually become a thing. Anyways, so. Uh, oh, yeah, by the way, it takes 52 minutes and 40 seconds for Lando to show up, just to really show this. Um, Beckett talks him down. L3 
I don't want to talk about all three. I like the actress, but the problem is, once again, she's portrayed as mostly humorous when she should actually be a serious character. Serious about her relationship to Lando, yes, really, and serious about the idea of droid slavery, yet both are basically portrayed as jokes. One is a ha-ha discomfort in her conversation with Kira, and the other is more of a ha-ha, look how zany she is, as I mentioned earlier in the Kessel scene. This dual tone thing doesn't work at all, and as a result, she's just kind of there. It's funny because she's not in very many scenes. She's barely in the film, actually. She shows up there, they go get their ship out, they go to Kessel, they do the, the evacuation, and then she dies. Bam, bam, bam. Very short. Is it just me or the Falcon just look absolutely pristine here? Which actually I love the hell out of. Of course it looks pristine. It's his yacht. I mean, why would Lando not have this pristine? It's the same reason why he has a closet of capes. Uh, I already talked about the Kessel thing. I already talked about that. I already talked about that. I already talked about that. Most of the points I was going to make, I actually have already made around the Kessel thing. I do want to mention one thing. Beckett periodically gives advice to Han. And, oh yeah, actually, sorry, sorry, sorry. I do actually have one other thing before we get to that. I mentioned the fan service thing and the explanation thing. Having Lando deliberately mispronounce Han's name as Han, that's a nice touch. That helps to explain the thing in Empire Strikes Back, and I think he does that in Return of the Jedi as well. Han old, but yeah, yeah, no, he does say Han. Um, it also... Just It just kind of is there. They don't really pause the movie to wink at it, nod it. So that worked for me, too. Anyways, Beckett kind of takes Han under his wing. And Beckett says, here, here's how the world works, here's how the galaxy works, excuse me. They actually say the world several times in this film, and that's that's never a good sign when you're setting a setting in, you know, a, a galaxy, which has lots and lots of planets. He tries to teach him, tries to help him grow. And what's funny is Han takes his advice almost religiously every single time up until it comes to his girl. Up until it comes to Kira. This actually makes perfect sense. Because we as human beings are very, very stupid. How many times can you name, either in real life or in fiction, where there's someone who's been given advice by someone else and then all of a sudden they meet someone and, ah, they're in love. Oh, you, you advise me there's something wrong with the personnel? Well, screw you. The problem's obviously with you. Right? I did that. Uh, once, there was one girl I did that with, and I... It wasn't a big deal, really. It was just I should have listened. It would have saved some aggravation at the time. This is this is way, way back. This was like high school range. <laughs> Anywho. <clears throat> so... L3 gets shot. Lando, I'm trying really hard not to say Lando. Lando rushes out to save her. Because of course he does. Of course he cares. Why wouldn't he? He's a decent sort. And Han, who is also a decent sort, rushes out to save Lando. You'll notice nobody else does, except for Chewie. Sorry. You'll notice the only three people who take the heroic action, even though it is admittedly stupid, are Lando, Han, and Chewie. I don't know if that's deliberate or not, but it certainly does seem to line up with what we know about the characters, and I will be addressing that point in the future. 
But they manage to get away. L3 dies. She's made part of the ship. That's actually really horrific, but also neatly ties in with the ship having an unusual uh, personality over in Empire Strikes Back. Another nice tie-in. But this is, in my opinion, the worst part of the film. For ten solid minutes, I counted, they rush through the cloud and they actually have music from Empire Strikes Back from the asteroid scene playing as they go through the asteroid cloud. And then they fight the, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, the Summa Ver Verminoth, the Summa Verminoth. For some reason, there's just this giant jellyfish in space. Oh yeah, I wrote down a quote here, check this out, from James Klein, and I quote, The jellyfish in the Kessel Run, again, came from throwing dumb ideas out in a meeting. I literally opened my sketchbook and pitched, quote, What if the falcon had to fly through a jellyfish? Quote, laughter. Yeah, alright, okay. But we come back, and there's a jellyfish in the presentation. That says so much about the making of this film, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, so they fight the <clears throat> some of Verminoth, and they, they rush through, and they nearly die, and they, they eject the escape pod. That was good, too, by the way, the escape pod. Uh, I like that. It's another nice little tie-in. And then they get out. Whew. There's one part of this whole section I like. Actually, two. Sorry. There's two parts of this section I like. The first is excellent visual and audio design when they're going through the void before they actually encounter the Maw. And here the Maw is just a, a, you know, a gravity mass rather than being the Maw, a sequence of things. We'll talk about that in a second. <clears throat> so I do like the visuals and the design of the Maw. It is very impressive. And I do want to absolutely give praise and credit for the people who made it look as huge and vast and horrifying and dark and terrible as it does. Good job on that front. The, uh, the other thing I like about it is there's no Abeloth here. So, <clears throat> they get out. Kira, why is Kira the only one who knows Han well enough to actually get him? You know, it's, it's, the, it's the Jack Sparrow thing. You're a good man. I mean, he is. Han is a good person. He is a legitimately good person. That's kind of core to his character, is that he was a good person who was raised in a smuggler's you know, underbelly of a galaxy and then was allowed to be a good person. That's pretty much his arcs, right? So why is she the only one who sees that? And don't tell me because they knew each other as kids. That was years ago. Anywho, <clears throat> maybe she's just observant enough? That could be it. Warwick Davis shows up. I just wanted to comment on that because it was actually cool to see him again. And we find out... <sighs> I'm a sucker for a good reveal scene. Uh, in two weeks, we'll be covering another film that has a good reveal scene. I'm a, good, I'm a sucker for it. And I do like how he lined this up. I do. He figured out enough to not trust Beckett. And so he went to Beckett, all legit style. I need you on this. Beckett said nope. Beckett sold him out. This leads, leads to the unstable... The problem is there's a lot of moving... Well, let me rewind that. There's no problem here. There's a lot of moving parts here, and this could have gone wrong very badly in very many ways. They could have just shot him when he came in, knowing it was a trap. Or they could have just taken the blast when they knew it was a trap. Or he could have mishandled the actually real coaxium, and they could have all died. None of those things happened, but the reason I'm okay with that is because it's a Han Solo plan. They're not known for their brilliance and their subtlety. They're known for making it up on the fly and somehow managing to make it work. That's kind of his shtick. So, I do like this plan. I do like him going to Beckett. I do like him getting sold out. I do like the fight. 
um, <laughs> I wish I, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. I lo- there's a weird fake out scene during the fight between Voss and uh, Han, where Han is rolling up to shoot him, and Kira disarms Han. And then talks about how, you know, this is what you must do. And then attacks Voss and then fights him for a bit. That fake-out seemed completely unnecessary to me. Because that's what Kira was going to do anyways. Or was it? See, here's the thing. I think she was going to do that anyways. I think this is already where she was going. For reasons I'll get to in just a moment. So she could have just taken advantage of the situation and come up and, and you know, like, ha! Or maybe she wanted to get him off guard, but it didn't work because he then just immediately fights back. So what she does is she effectively loses her advantage for the sake of speechifying for a moment and giving the audience a fake-out. That's why I don't like it, because it's a fake-out for the audience, not for the character. However, that works a little bit better if she hadn't made up her mind yet. If she hadn't decided to go ahead and side against Voss knowing what that would mean. What do you think? Either way, Kira is the one to beat Voss, which I like. Uh, she is certainly more capable in combat than Han is, so that actually lines up. Funnily enough, I think the two of them would have made a hell of a duo. That, of course, never happened, and as such, will never happen, given, given the circumstances. I really do hope we see more of her. Oh yeah, big reveal. Darth Maul! Even though he's not a Darth anymore. That weirded me out seeing that in the films. Because I was just like, wait. And I talked about this on the stream. When does this take place? Well, it turns out this takes place before Rebels. Which confused the crap out of me. For those of you not aware, small spoilers, Maul is in Rebels. He's not in charge of a giant criminal empire in Rebels. So, huh? There's actually a bit of a gap here in between this film and Rebels, which... Uh, to my knowledge, has still not been filled, specifically. I do hope they fill that sometime with the adventures of Kira or whatever, because, you know, I, I think that would be awesome. It also kind of goes back to that whole tears thing I mentioned earlier, you know, the big fish knowing they're small fish and blah, blah, blah. Maul is a big fish. He's not as big as the biggest fish. He's nothing compared to Palpatine or Dooku, for example. But he is a big fish. And seeing this reveal and seeing that he's behind Dawn and probably behind the entirety of the syndicates does help to make things line up neatly and make things interesting. The problem is this is even more confusing. Now, we have since had something that helped flesh this out. But at the time of watching this, the last I saw was that he was taken by Palpatine in Clone Wars and then this and then his appearance in Rebels. So how does he go from being a prisoner of Palpatine to leader of his own crime syndicates to what happens in Rebels? Now, we've had a little bit of that gap filled. I hope they fill the rest of it, like I said. Um, this is also the second most overt tie-in to the AU here. So... We kind of have the finale now. Everything's got to get into the right position and make sure that everything's ready to go. One of the one of the better scenes in the film, in my opinion, is when he goes after Beckett. And they start to talk. They start to speechify. And then Han shoots him. Now, the film actually went out of its way to show us that Beckett was starting to grip his blaster. 
and he flat out admits he was going to shoot Han. Han also regrets that. All of those pieces are perfect, in my opinion. Remember, Han is now on the falling edge of decency. Or at least, he's on the other side of it. He had to shoot Beckett. Beckett was an enemy. Beckett had to be taken down. But didn't want to. It was not something he would have chosen for himself, and he regrets the fact that he had to go down. This is also probably the beginning of Han Solo's cynicism, a layer which would stay on him until A New Hope shows up. It is worth noting, though, that, and this is the other big tie into the AU, he ends up giving the coaxium to uh, Ephes Nest. Infus Nest, excuse me. Now, I looked into this a little bit, because she flat out says we're going to use this to fund a rebellion. Turns out she actually takes this stuff straight to Saw Gerrera. And this ends up being how and why Saw Gerrera is able to fund so much of what he's going to be doing over the next several years, leading into Rogue One. Sidebar. Given that up, one of the main theatrical points of the AU is that there's lots of different rebel groups up until Rogue One, and then they start to unify into a rebel alliance, I find myself wondering if any of the other rebel cells got any of the money that Saw pulled from that sale. I can see it going both ways, because Saw, well, I mean, he's Saw, but he does also care about the cause, and if he thinks it will actually benefit the cause, I can see him sharing it. What do you guys think? To my knowledge, we don't actually know, but I could be wrong, and I haven't covered all of that, that in its entirety. So Han is, is, you know, he started to become cynical. Uh, Han has also deliberately and personally helped fund the Rebellion. That's our other big continuity tie-in. Uh, Kira, she goes off to be with Maul. Have fun on Dathomir. And the only two people who left are Han and Chewie. And Lando. The three good guys. The three decent people who are all, all the other ones who are actually loyal. And I have to admit, I love the fact that Han does beat Lando fair and square in the Sabacc game. He does. He beats him without a, he beats him without any cheating involved. Which is, of course, one of the reasons why that fair and square thing amuses me so much. Oh yeah. Speaking of callbacks that work for me, the I'm gonna kill you. Nah, I'm just kidding, we're buddies tidbit that actually kind of made me smile i really hope we get to see more of donald glover as lando i really do this was an interesting film to discuss and analyze lots to talk about i don't even know how long i've been talking here but god just a jumble i feel like i'm looking at a jigsaw puzzle where you know how some of the pieces kind of fit but that's not actually where they fit I feel like that's what I'm looking at. A jigsaw puzzle where, you know, about half the film makes sense and lines up. And then there's just pieces here and there which were clearly just jammed into place where they're not supposed to go. So the picture's just all over the place. That's what this film feels like to me. It's actually a damn shame because I, I hate to say this, but I firmly believe the idea of the film could have been really good if it hadn't been mismanaged to hell and back. Now we won't know. It was such a flop that we'll probably won't even get another film like this anytime soon. That's how Disney tends to operate. If you're successful, great. Keep going. If you're not, well, we're going to pull back a little bit. Pretty standard business practices. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time, guys.